Well, I don't know if you noticed it, um, but it, it's kind of strange, that thing that just happened here. Um, just a few minutes ago, there were, there were a bunch of people in this room singing. And not like at a concert where one person sings, everyone else kind of follows along a little bit, but actually singing together. Um, everybody. And, and, and as if they were part of the show. And some of them, some of them we weren't even the greatest singers, and yet they were right into it. What, what a strange thing we do. What a weird thing, really. Where else in society do you see that? What on earth would cause this group of people to do something so odd? Maybe what on earth is the wrong question. But I want us to stop this morning and consider what we do, why we do it this way. The church has done this for thousands of years. Our church makes a big deal of this. Um, Are we doing it right? What are we doing? This morning as we come to Exodus 15, I just invite you to turn with me in your Bibles there. Um, If you don't have a Bible, um, just slip up your hand. Um, One of our ushers will get you a Bible. Um, We want you to have God's Word open in your lap um, that we can see what God has for us this morning. The people of Israel uh, had just experienced God's great salvation through the, the Red Sea. They've been brought out of slavery to Egypt Uh, In in chapter 14, we have this magnificent story. And then chapter 15 just tells the same story again. It's totally redundant. The the Lord has triumphed gloriously, the horse and rider he's thrown into the sea. Um, It's great, but we know that. We we just went over this, Moses. Why are you telling us again? Why why does he spend precious writing materials and and space um, to tell the same story again? And I think that question itself um, ought to get us to stop and think. Why is this here? It signals to us there's something happening in chapter 15 that didn't happen in chapter 14. That wasn't there. If it was just about historical data, um, anything new in chapter 15, he could have just added it into chapter 14. Chapter 15 isn't so much about the information that's there as it is about the way it's delivered. Chapter 15 isn't about historical facts, it's a song, it's worship. And this song accomplishes something different, accomplishes something that the narrative before it couldn't accomplish. As I mentioned last week, um, as we're looking at Exodus chapter 15 through 18, we're going to kind of under this this mini-series, this heading, The Giver of Life. And as we see Israel here freshly rescued out of Egypt, They're still on the the banks of the Red Sea on the other side. They sing this song, and and it seems to me this this song is like the first evidence of life. This is that baby's first cry out of the womb. It's It's the signal of healthy new life as they sing to the Lord. So I think we ought to take note. I think we ought to stop and and look here. What are the things we can learn from this, this inspired worship song? that Israel joins together in and and draw some principles out of this for for our own worship here today. So let's look at uh, verse 1, Exodus chapter 15. Let me read it for us. It says, Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously the horse and rider he has thrown into the sea. Let's just stop right there, right off the bat. Principle number one is sing. Uh, let's, let's not overlook the importance of the obvious. They sang. 
They, they're, they're gathered together, and Moses writes this song, and, and they sing together. We are commanded throughout Scripture to sing. It's right here. It's rampant through the Psalms. As you read through it, the Psalms are not just an example of the priority of singing. It's this massive, inspired hymn book. Um, but it's filled with commands to sing. Psalm 96.1, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord. Bless his name. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Psalm 47, sing praises to our God. Sing praises. Sing praises to our King. Sing praises. It's relentless. The New Testament picks it up as well. Uh, Ephesians 5.19 talks about life in the Spirit, and it says we ought to live addressing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord in our hearts. This is not a coincidence. Um, It's helpful to remember God doesn't just work with what He has, right? It's not as though God said, well, I have the, there's this music thing that people do. I could use that to worship me. No, God started from scratch. He started with nothing. He created the entire concept of, of musical notes and melodies and, and harmonies for the purpose of us worshiping Him. That's why we have music. Singing is this amazing gift that God has given And think about it, nothing else in all of creation sings. We talk about birds singing, and they they do tweet beautifully, but but it's not really a song. Frogs and crickets make their noise to the glory of God for sure, but it's not singing. And, And actually, if you look carefully, even the angels declaring the birth of Jesus only say glory to God in the highest. Humans are the only thing in creation that sings. The only other thing that sings is God himself who exalts over his children with singing. God created singing. He created us to sing and he commands us to sing. So here's a question. What if I don't feel like it? I mean, singing takes heart. It takes emotion. What if I'm just not into it? Is it, is it phony? Is it hypocritical? Is it wrong to, to sing when my heart's not there? Well, look at the first line of this song to Moses, He's, of Moses. He says, I will sing. It's not future tense. He's not saying someday down the road I'm going to sing. He's saying I've decided to. It's, a, it's an act of volition. It's an act of the will. He's declaring. He's determined to do it. I will sing. Singing's not optional. It's commanded. And, and sometimes we do need to just decide to sing, to do what is right, to do what we should because we should, to do it as an act of obedience. And and sometimes we go with a heart grieving that it's not where it ought to be. And that honors the Lord. But one of the particular beauties of singing is that it has the power to change our heart, to move our emotions. So Jonathan Edwards quote, it's a little wordy, but I think it's worth it if we can wrap our heads around it. He says, the duty of singing praises to God seems to be appointed wholly, completely for the purpose of to excite and express religious affections. That's Edward's word for emotions. Appointed wholly to excite and express religious affections. No other reason can be assigned why we should express ourselves to God in verse, in, in song, 
rather than in prose, and do it with music, but only that such is our nature and frame that these things have a tendency to move our affections. Why else would we be commanded to sing? But that singing and music awakens our affections, awakens our hearts. That's the point. So I don't feel like singing, but acting in obedience to join in singing has the ability to to change the way I feel. Now I have to admit there's a danger there. We don't want to be just carried away by hollow emotion. We don't want to be moved by only music. And because of that danger, um, some churches throughout history uh, have opted not to use instruments in the church at all. There are churches to this day that continue in that tradition. Because they want to be absolutely sure that we're not just getting carried away by the music. We're not just getting wrapped up in that and, and having this hollow emotion. And they're right. There's some legitimacy there. It would not be honoring to the Lord if we were stirred up in church by music only. If our worship was highly emotional without, without anything behind it, not, not focusing on and springing out from the glorious truths of the gospel, that, that would be problematic. You can go to a rock concert and, and the way they play with the flow of the music, you'll, you'll find people moved and even teary-eyed, and, and there's no glory to God in that. So there's legitimacy to that concern. But I think that fear of getting carried away by music misses the reason we were given music altogether. And the reason that we're commanded to sing, and the reason that we're even commanded to use instruments all through the Psalms. And there's an opposite danger here as well. One that I don't think we take seriously enough, that, that we would sing with our mouths these glorious truths of the gospel with hearts that are dead and cold. Where's the glory to God in that? Uh, Matthew 15, 8, Jesus confronts the Pharisees and he says, this people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Back to Ephesians 5.19, says that we're to sing and make melody in our hearts to the Lord. We're often commanded not only to sing, but to rejoice in the Lord in song. And so heartless singing is an equal, uh, equally fails to glorify the Lord. It's just as problematic. And yet how often that happens, our, our hearts are, are dull and slow and, and they're not moved as they should be by these wonderful truths of the glory of God and, and we neglect God's tool for moving our hearts, for awakening them and fixing that problem. Sometimes we need to decide, I, I will sing, I'm going to make that decision, my, my heart is slow and dull, but I am going to sing and I'm going to allow the, the music to help move my heart, to awaken my heart to where it should be, to be a little bit closer to what it should be as I sing these amazing truths of the gospel. Now this next thing is, is very much secondary. But that's one of the reasons that we're committed to using contemporary music. Sing in a, a style, a, a genre of music um, that is from this culture. Um, I don't know if you've ever listened to like Indian music or, or Native American music or, I don't know, Albanian music. It, it just it 
doesn't hit the same. Music is, is, is essentially cultural. And, and musics from other cultures don't have the same effect on us. It, it's, it's, it's absolutely a preference thing. It's not a theological thing. It's not right or wrong. Um, but music is cultural, and so different music grabs different people different ways. And the music that we grew up with um, is the music that, that catches our hearts. And so our goal as a church is to try to use music that most broadly grabs and moves the hearts of of the people who live in Olds in 2019, the, the culture of those gathered here. Seems inescapably logical to me. And so it's right to sing, and we're commanded to sing, and, and the very nature of, of singing and music is designed to help our hearts be, be moved and to join in the song. So sing to the Lord. Worship as we were, as we were created to, to worship. Now, we've got 20 verses to go. So uh, I promise we're going we're gonna to pick up pace right after this. But verse 2 is just loaded. Um, let me read verse 2 for us. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise Him, my Father's God, and I will exalt Him. What a, what a beautiful statement of worship here. I want to just notice that the second principle here, I think, that we can pull from this. There's a lot we, we could drill down on here. Um, but, but on the face of it, this worship is both congregational and personal. It's congregational and personal. Uh, we saw in verse 1 already, um, they're singing this together. It's all of Israel joining in this song. This is a corporate experience. This is about the people whom God has rescued, gathered together, worshiping. It's not individualistic. It's not you know, each Israelite kind of heading off to their quiet place in the wilderness to worship by themselves. There's nothing wrong with that. But this is about corporate unity. right? So sure, we, you know, it's, it's great to get out into your quiet place all by yourself and spend that time with the Lord. Uh, I, had a, I had a beautiful time of worship this morning, um, shaving by myself. I some of you are like, you missed a spot. I still got to clean up a little bit. Um, but yeah, just there in, in the bathroom, music playing and, and, and overcome with worship, that's great, but it's not this. This is what uh, we're, we're also commanded to do this, to gather together as the body, to worship. And, and, and yet... There's another side to that. It's not, it's not just a function of what we do as a group, right? So I can say last week, um, we handed out flowers to all the mothers. Now I have to confess, from start to absolute finish, I never touched one of those flowers. Um, but I can still say, we handed out flowers. We did that as a church together. Worship's not like that. We don't get included just by being part of the group. Worship is also deeply personal. The rescue at the Red Sea involved all of them. Um, they easily could have said, He is our God, He is our strength, He is our song, but they don't. They're all singing together, He is my God, He is my strength, my personal help when I am weak. He is my song. What does it mean the Lord is their song? Maybe if you've ever had a, a young daughter, um, you understand how this goes. Um, 
my daughter, she gets a song in her heart. She's in a good mood. It's just coming out everywhere, constantly, all the time. Wherever she goes, whatever she's doing, that, that song is just bubbling out. It's her constant companion. It's her source of joy. Is, is the Lord your song? Is he the melody of your heart, the joy in your heart? And why ought our hearts to be filled with joy in him? Because he is our salvation. More specifically, he's my salvation. So I will extol him, exalt him. Again, Ephesians 5.19, we see this, this balance happening again. We're supposed to be addressing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing together, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. There's this micro-macro thing happening all together. It's both congregational as we gather together, recognizing, encouraging one another. Uh, in, some, or in Ephesians 5, there's even this aspect of singing to one another. We're encouraging each other as we sing together. And yet it's happening in our own hearts. It's deeply personal. We see those dynamics at Psalm 22, 22. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. Psalm 35, 18, I will thank you in the great congregation, in the mighty throng, I will praise your name. So we ought to, we ought to sing together, we ought to engage in letting the music move us and lift our, our affections to God in a way that is both congregational and, and deeply personal. Now let's get a few more verses under our belts here. If we read verses uh, 3 to 11. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his hosts, he came into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power, your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury, it consumes them like stubble. In the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The floods stood up in a heap. The deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword, my hand shall destroy them. But you blew your wind, the sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? He's already declared he will sing to the Lord, that the Lord is his passion, his delight, that he will exalt the Lord. And so it only makes sense going forward. His worship is distinctly God-centered. That's principle number three here. Worship is God-centered. Um, should be understood, shouldn't be an earth-shattering principle for us. And yet I think how often we, we hear Christian songs or, or songs before his worship songs, and you're like, if you stop and look at it, it's just all about me. I don't want to sing about me. I want to sing about the Lord. The Lord, he's a, he's a man of war. The Lord is his name. And the Lord there in all caps, so we know that's, that's Yahweh. That's the, the great I am statement. And then he talks about what God has done. So he talks about who God is and then what God has, has done. He defeated Pharaoh, his chariots, his armies. He threw them into the sea. And then verse 6, the language shifts, if you notice. 
And he begins to talk to the Lord. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Look at verse 7. In the greatness of your majesty, you overflow or overthrow your adversaries. He's their joy. He's their strong Savior. And so they sing about Him and about who He is and what He has done. And then to Him directly addressing God. If we look down at verse 11, uh, Moses in writing this song about God and to God is not afraid to be theological either. Who is the Lord among the gods? Who is like you? majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders. And he's not saying there are other gods. Um, That's part of this statement coming out of the Red Sea. Um, Who is like you among the gods? No one. Those other false gods don't even exist. Um, But he's theological. How majestic is God, this is speaking of His holiness, His uniqueness, His supremacy in all things. Um, One of the great benefits of singing songs is that they teach. We remember them. That's why we learn the alphabet in song. That's why you have to sing this stupid little song to remember the alphabet. Um, Songs teach. It sticks. C.J. Mahaney uh, says that our best worship songs are take-home theology. We, We go home singing theology. That's why the Reformers were so eager to write music and to teach songs that that people would be learning truth through music. And so along with that, uh, I think it goes without saying, the songs that we sing ought to be true and accurate. That matters. I want to take that lightly. When people ask me, what what kind of worship do you do at your church, which is usually like the first or second question, Um, that's how we define churches so often today, Um, I'll typically say that we are contemporary without compromise. We're we're contemporary in the the style, the, the, the way that we do it, the music is for our culture here today, and we're without compromise in the content of the theology. We want to be careful about that. So if we're going to introduce a new song, Josh is going to send me lyrics without music because in this case, I don't want to be moved by music. I want to be able to look objectively and critically and we're just going to dig through it. And and if it's not something I would preach, then it's not something we're going to sing together because songs teach. Um, Truth matters. And and, and John 4.24, Jesus says, those who worship God must worship in spirit and in truth. It'd be like if I were to uh, to phone my, uh, my blue-eyed wife who's away this weekend and just tell her how much I miss her deep brown eyes. Um, not going to go over well. She's not going to be excited about that. Um, we want to worship God by things that are true about Him, not for things that, that, that He's not. We want to strive after worship that's, that's carefully biblical, but that's, that's God-centered, that we're lifting Him up and theologically rich. Now, I I do want to say as we hit this point about being God-centered and not man-centered, that's not something I want to be nitpicky about. I I hope Josh isn't sitting there now going, oh no, the rest of the songs that I picked for the, do they say I in them anywhere? That's not the point. Even this song starts off with, I will sing. There's acknowledgement of us in it. But, But what's the heart of it? What's the focus? The thing that we fixate on, that's what we're worshiping. That's what we're lifting high. We want our songs to be about Him primarily. Um, 
So we want to sing. We want to sing congregationally and, and personally. We want to sing songs that are God-centered. And let's take a look at, at verses 12 through 19. I think we'll see principle number four. Um, worship springs from what God has done and looks forward to what God will do. It springs from what he has done and looks forward to what he will do. Let me read these verses for us. Verse 12, you stretched out your right hand, the earth swallowed them. You have led in your steadfast love the people you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. The people have heard, they tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seize the leaders of Moab and all the inheritance of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them because of the greatness of your arm. They are still like a stone till your people, O Lord, pass by, till the people pass by whom you have purchased. You will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord will reign forever and ever. And so ends this song of Moses. Now notice, their worship is rooted in the past and, and looking to the future. It's rooted in what God has done. He's, he's rescued them out of Egypt through the Red Sea in this glorious salvation. Um, verse 12, you stretched out your hand and you swallowed them. And then verse 13 is this another just theologically rich statement of what God has done for them. Listen to this. You have led, your, led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. Now, that word steadfast love there, that's, that's the word chesed. It's God's covenant love, his, his relentless, unchanging love. Um, it's the word used in, in Deuteronomy 4, uh, verse 37. And because he loved your fathers... He chose their offspring after them and brought you out of Egypt with his own presence by his great power. Um, that's the love of God, the saving love of God. It was that steadfast love that, that moved him to redeem Israel, to, to purchase them as his own possession. And, and that redemption, that, that saving out of Egypt and through the Red Sea becomes just central to Israel's worship for the ages to come just as the cross of Christ ought to be central to our worship, how he has redeemed us. But that redemption was not the end. It was then moving somewhere. He, he redeemed them to guide them into his holy abode. It's rooted in the past, but it's looking forward to the future. There's still an end goal here. And so verse 13 is kind of this synopsis, and then verses 14 through 18 kind of unpack it and, and run through the same thing together again a little bit longer. And the, the language through these verses, um, sorry, I guess the end of 13 and, and down uh, in 17, um, it, it's borrowed from the word of shepherding, from the world of shepherding. Um, guiding them speaks of a shepherd leading his flock, caring for them. The word abode there uh, is, is another rich word. It's the word neve, and, and, it, and it speaks of a rich pasture, a full place of, of rest, of green grass, and, and it's often used as a, as a picture of heaven to come. 
So they sing because of God's great redemption of them, because of the way he rescued them, but not just that they came out from Egypt, but that he's taking them to the promised land, that there's a, there's a, a focus, there's an end goal here. And so uh, again, now we move into verses 14 to 16 that, that just kind of unpack the first section of this. And, and it uses past tense language as if it's already happened. And so it's a little confusing. And we start reading these different people group names and our brains kind of shut off and we go, what is he talking about? Um, These are all of the nations that exist between Egypt and the promised land and those living in the promised land. And so he's saying God is going to destroy them. Again, it's past tense language because the the presumption is this song is going to be sung uh, for years to come and, and this will become true. As he brings them toward this end goal, um, those nations will collapse in fear. Not, not right away. Some of them will stand in arrogance, but in the end they will fall. And then verse 17 comes to that end goal, the holy abode again. He says, you will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain, the place, O Lord, which you have made your abode. The sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established, the Lord will reign forever and ever. There are layers to this promise as we see it playing out. He will bring them first to Mount Sinai, the the mountain on which God met Moses back in in Exodus chapter 3. And he promised them, I will bring the people back to this mountain where they will worship. And he does. He brings them there. but, But that's not their final destination. Then he brings them to another mountain, a greater mountain, the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. 480 years after this day, Solomon will build the temple for the Lord, and that's where his presence will dwell. That's where they will meet with God. But even that temple in the promised land was not the final destination. John 2.21, Jesus says to the Pharisees that he himself is the new temple, the new place where man can meet with God and the culmination, the fullness of that final promised land is our final holy abode in glory, in eternity, in the place of rest, in the presence of God. And that place is introduced in in Revelation, actually looking right back to this song. It it picks up on these themes. Uh, Revelation 15 Chapter, uh, verses 3 and 4, it says, And they sing the song of Moses, this song right here, the servant of God and the song of the Lamb. And then there's this synopsis. You can hear the themes of Exodus 15 coming through. Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. Revelation eleven fifteen. those familiar words that we hear every Christmas from Handel's Messiah. Um, it's in Revelation, but it's, it's quoting Exodus 15. The seventh angel blew his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. It's 15 verse 18. 
Our worship ought to be rooted in what God has done, his steadfast love for us, the amazing work of Jesus on the cross and the redemption that he made for us there. But it ought also to be looking forward to that great sanctuary that he's not done yet. He's started this work and he's going to complete it one day. That eternal rest that we have been promised, this holy abode, this rich and full pasture, he will reign forever and ever. So we ought to sing. Our singing ought to be congregational and personal. It ought to be God-centered and and rooted in what He's done and looking forward to what He is to come. And and then the, the song ends there. But we get one more glimpse, one more recap of the Red Sea through verse 19. And then this last great example of Miriam and all of the women showing that our worship should be a passionate celebration. A passionate celebration. Let me read uh, verses 19 to 21. For the horses of Pharaoh with his chariots and his horsemen went into the sea, and the Lord brought back the waters of the sea upon them. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground in the midst of the sea. Then Miriam, the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women went out after her with tambourines and dancing. And Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously, the horse and rider he has thrown into the sea. So again, verse 19 is this kind of recap again of what God has just done in the Red Sea. But then verses 20 and 21, we we see this singing again, but from another perspective. Moses wrote the song, he, he taught it to the people, and then Miriam takes this song, Miriam's the, the sister of, of Moses and Aaron, and she gets the women together, and they're so moved by what God has done, they, they pick up tambourines, and they begin to play and dance and sing Moses' song. And as good conservative Canadian Christians, I think we should just close in prayer. Let's pretend we never read that. Dancing? You can't do that. That's not okay. Uh, I think probably fair to say those of us who grew up in the church grew up understanding dancing is not proper. It's not appropriate. Some would have said sin. Certainly not in the church. Church is a solemn place of worship, right? You can't play games in the church. You can't dance in church. Dancing is vulgar. Things in church should be done with order and respect. Dancing happens in the bars. Dancing leads to all kinds of things. The only place dancing might happen to those those crazy charismatic churches, and we sure don't want to be mistaken for one of them. Dancing just would not be proper. This passage makes us uncomfortable. What do we do with that? He's not going to tell us to dance, is he? I don't know. It's not looking good. It's not a new dilemma. We're not the first ones to feel this tension. I wanted to jump over to another passage of Scripture with dancing in it, one that I, I think is helpful for us to consider. I took some time looking at this a few weeks ago and, and was helped by it. Second Samuel, verse, uh, starting in verse 6, or sorry, 2 Samuel chapter 6, um, I won't have it up on the screen. You have to turn over there. Uh, I'll give you a couple minutes to 
flip in that direction. 2 Samuel chapter 6, and read verses 12 to 23. Um, the context here is the Ark of the Covenant, the, the central piece of the, the tabernacle, the presence of God, um, was foolishly lost in battle. And now it had been recovered, and they're bringing it back into Jerusalem. And so there's this celebration. Let me read this for us. 2 Samuel chapter 6, starting in verse 12. And it was told King David, The Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom. That's where the ark was being kept on its way back. And all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. And so David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. And David danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. And so David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. And the ark of the Lord came into the city of David. Michal, the daughter of Saul, who was also David's wife, looked out of the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord. And she despised him in her heart. And they brought in the ark of the Lord and set it on its place inside the tent of David that David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And when David had finished offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts and distributed among the people the whole multitude of Israel, both men and women, a cake of bread and a portion of meat and a cake of raisins to each one. And then all the people departed, each to his own house." And David returned to bless his own household. But Michal, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, How the king of Israel has honored himself today, uncovering himself today before the eyes of the servants, female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. David said to Michal, it was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me as prince over Israel, the people of the Lord, and I will celebrate before the Lord. I will make myself yet more contemptible than this, and I will be abased in your eyes. But by the female servants whom you have spoken, by them I should be held in honor. And Michal, the daughter of Saul, had no child till the day of her birth, to the day of her death. So here we have David, the king of Israel, the man after God's own heart, worshiping God. And there's sacrifices and there's shouting and horns are being blown and David is dancing before the Lord. It's this massive celebration. And then in verse 16, we have Michal, the daughter of Saul, David's wife, looking out the window, and she sees David dancing. And it says she despised him in her heart. How heartbreaking. Down in verse 20, the, the festivities have come to an end. Everyone returns home. David goes home, it says, to, to bless his household. He's excited to go home and, and bring this joy into his own household. And, and he meets Michal who scolds him. Sarcastically, she says, oh, how the king has honored himself today. Is that how you hold this position? 
uncovering himself before the eyes of the servants as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. Now, from these verses, we've somehow worked into our vocabulary that David danced naked before the Lord. Um, It doesn't say that. He takes off his royal robes. It says uh, that he's wearing a linen ephod. He's wearing priestly garments as he's actually performing sacrifices. But he's uncovered himself. He's taken off his proper regalia. It wasn't proper. It wasn't according to protocol. It wasn't fitting in Michal's eyes that, that he in this high position would dress like one of the vulgar men, like one of the peasants. What are you doing? She's so concerned about what is proper, what is dignified. Notice, while David and the rest of the people are dancing and rejoicing, where is she at? She's at home, looking out the window, stewing over what's proper. Notice also, she's not concerned about what the Lord thinks is proper. Her eyes are on the people. She's concerned about what other people will think. What's acceptable and accepted in the eyes of the public? What will the servants think? And the Lord does not look kindly on Michal. Verse 23 is not there by coincidence. She had no children until the day of her death. She's cursed by the Lord with barrenness. It's this dreadful picture of what's happened in her soul. There's no life. Tragic. My, my second year of Bible college, I had taken a few theology classes, begun to read theology a little more seriously, began to grow in understanding, but faster in arrogance. And twice a week, we had chapel services with amazing musicians and and a couple of hundred young adults gathered together to worship the Lord. And, And for a better part of a year, twice a week, I would take up my place in that sanctuary to my shame and sit there and critique. Thinking through the theology of the songs, contemplating every theological loophole, every place the wording wasn't very specific, wasn't careful enough. If the song was particularly out of line with my superior insight, I would sit down in protest and take out my Bible and read the Psalms to myself, thinking that was properly worshiping God. I felt pretty good about my high standards. I felt pretty confident in my judgment of those lesser Christians who just didn't seem to care what they sang. Until one day God graciously crushed me. I looked over to my left and I saw a fellow classmate who I knew um, was far, far less theologically astute than I was, singing a song that, that was riddled with theological holes. And while I stood there with my arms crossed, there was a smile on her face. She's looking up to heaven, her arms open wide and a tear on her cheek. God was immeasurably more glorified in heartfelt worship, imprecise as it was, than he was in my precise, hard-hearted, arrogant, self-focused heart. What a fool. Because of it, my spiritual life had been barren, dead. 
Theological precision is important. It's a great thing. It's something we ought to, to strive for. In fact, it would be wrong not to. But my concern wasn't about the glory of God. It was, it was, it was for what was proper. And it had much more to do with me making a statement to the people around me than it had to do with true concern for the glory of God. And it had become sin, crippling sin. If my concern and desire had been to glorify God, to, to see Him worshipped to the utmost extent, there was ample opportunity for me to do that. I could easily have overlooked the theological foibles in those songs, reinterpreted them in my own heart, and sung with passion and joy and lifted high the name of God. But that wasn't my goal. I was protecting my pride. I was making a statement about what was proper. I had to repent of that. Look at David's response to Michal. Verses 21 to 23. David said to Michal, It was before the Lord who chose me above your father, above all his house, to appoint me as prince over Israel, the people of the Lord. And I celebrated before the Lord. I will make myself yet more contemptible than this. I will be abased in your eyes, but by the female servants of whom you have spoken, by them I'll be held in honor. Michal, it wasn't for you. I get that you don't approve, but I wasn't looking for your approval in the first place. And it wasn't for the people watching either. I, I was worshiping the Lord. I was dancing before Him. I don't care what I look like to others. I don't care what they think is proper. I care what God thinks is proper. I was worried about glorifying Him because He is worthy. And if that makes me contemptible in your eyes, then so be it. Then I will be a fool in your eyes if that's what I need to do to worship my God. And those ladies that you spoke of, the ones who were also focused on glorifying the Lord, who were with me in that, they they will not see me as contemptible. To them, I'll be honored. But again, that's not the point. David worshiped before the Lord. Are our hearts more concerned with what's proper, according to human customs, or about glorifying the Lord, worshiping Him? Not caring, not thinking about what the people around us perceive to be respectable or expected. How, how many times have you wanted to raise your hand in worship and the first thing that comes to your mind is, what will the person behind me think? Why do we care? Why are we so concerned? Now, that doesn't mean we, we don't have any parameters. That doesn't mean that chaos reigns. We are concerned about what the Lord thinks. That's our goal. We do want to do what's proper before Him. If you back up in 2 Samuel, um, you have the story of Uzzah um, who reached out to touch the ark to steady it. Um, he did what was improper in the sight of the Lord and the Lord struck him dead for it. We want our worship to be within the Lord's bounds. And so 1 Corinthians 14 says we ought to operate in the, as a church in a way that's, that's orderly. And we're to worship together focused on the Lord. And so if, if you want to come up front and dance and wave a flag in front of the projector screen, I, that's going to draw attention to you and off of the Lord. I, 
you know what, that's not going to work here. We want to we do things in a way that facilitate all of us worshiping together. But I don't think that's our problem. I want to miss this call from 2 Samuel 6 and from Exodus 15 with our eyes fixed on the Lord, with our hearts bent toward nothing other than giving Him the glory that He deserves, with our minds focused on what He has done in our salvation, our hope set on the fulfillment of His promises. We ought to, we ought to just cut loose in passionate worship and celebration for our God. I get that looks different for different people. Some people get excited and, and they just, they're, their, their, their emotions spill out into their body. They're, they're the hand talkers among us, right? We see that. Other people just aren't that physically expressive. That's okay. I don't care. I don't care if you raise your hands or dance or if you close your eyes and rock gently side by side. What I care about is that we worship the Lord. I want His best for you and your best for Him, that, that, that we're giving the Lord what He cares about passionate worship, celebration, focused on Him. We sing and make melody to the Lord in our heart together. Church, we were created to worship. We were saved to worship. We have seen and know things far greater than Israel has seen. Will you decide to worship the Lord? to sing to Him, focused on Him, passionately celebrating Him as He both commands and deserves. When the Lord looks down on Redemption Church, will He see signs of life here? Let me pray for us and then we will worship together. Father, what a great God You are. Great things You have done. And we look back to the, to the Red Sea and your faithfulness in bringing Israel into the promised land and your promises still to fulfill even greater, bringing us to your holy abode. Seeing the cross and what you accomplished in our redemption, God, our hearts are eager to worship. Lord, help us. Help us to focus on you. Lord, that we would we would passionately worship you from the depths of our hearts, joining together in song, that you would be glorified. God, that we we wouldn't be so caught up in what anyone else thinks or what is proper in the eyes of man, uh, but on you and your glory, that you may be lifted high in our worship, Father. We pray these things in Jesus' name.